Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here uh, with Megan Kenyon, and this is part two of our podcast on art and theology. Megan is an artist uh, and uh, is a theologian, and she's bringing two realms, the two realms together, uh, to talk in an informed way about who she is as an artist and Christian. And uh, so we've covered a bit of the the history yes. of art, and let's let's move then. Maybe we could go to kind of set up the contrast. Who is it? It's uh, the the is it in the Dutch Reformed tradition that we get Vermeer? Yeah, he'd be kind of coming out of that kind of that world because it's like Vermeer and Rembrandt and those guys are all kind of they're all kind of concurrent and they're in that kind of side of Europe. And so, described how M- Vermeer's procedure in painting. So Vermeer, it's not a totally known thing, but they're pretty sure that he's one of the first people to use um, what they call a camera obscura, which is a very, very early version of what we would consider a camera. It's actually more like a projection device, because what they would do is they would have this box full of mirrors that would be able to, you could look through it and see the image, but it would reflect the image of what you're looking at upside down onto something so you could then trace it onto a canvas or a piece of paper or whatever. So they're pretty sure that Vermeer used that in his studio, that he would set up these kind of still lifes with people in them, as it were, and then use the camera obscura to jot the image down on the canvas and then paint it in afterwards so that um, he's literally recreating what he's seeing as he's seeing it as exact as he possibly can. And so it's, I mean, there's no question it's beautiful yeah. and striking. Uh, if free, maybe is it is it on the order, and tell me why I'm wrong here, I hope I'm wrong, that it's not as trite as a painting by Kincaid or... Yeah. I would say, personally, I would say that I like Vermeer a lot more than Kincaid, but I mean, that might be partially partially just personal taste. Um, one of the things that Vermeer is doing is he is not putting a rosy sheen on life. He's trying to present life exactly the way it is in his world. And so it's um, like one of his models was often his wife um, or they'd be you know people that he knew that would model for him. Um, they'd be wearing the kind of clothes that they would wear. Maybe they're nicer than your everyday kind of clothes, but like... Um, one of the paintings I really like by his, it's, I think the milkmaid, I can't remember the title of it now, but you know, it's, you know, a servant girl just pouring milk into a jar. Um, that's the kind of thing that you would just see probably around someone's house. And there doesn't seem to be, cause he paints a lot of rich people, but he also paints what would be considered kind of poor people as well. And so he's painting his world the way it is. Versus a Thomas Kincaid, which while he is an incredible painter when it comes to creating light where it feels like the canvas itself almost has light behind it. He's created these worlds. Um, like I was just listening to a lecture by Mark Lamberton. He's the president of Fuller Seminary, and he was talking about the concept of beauty and true beauty in the world and why we need beauty. 
And he was talking about one of the reasons why he doesn't like Thomas Kincaid is because Thomas Kincaid has created these worlds that look nothing like the world he knows. You know, who lives in these kinds of cottages with these, like, abundant, beautiful gardens and this kind of old-fashioned sense of life. Like, I know for me personally, I've never lived anywhere like that. I've never even gone on vacation somewhere like that. You know, it's, it's kind of a false ideal. And so while I think it was maybe created with an intention towards, you know, presenting light, presenting joy and happiness and things like that. Instead, it comes off feeling really fake and phony because whose life really looks like that? You know, if your life does look like that, how on earth did you achieve that? And so that would be kind of my... And so, uh, and maybe, you know, I, I sometimes my, my aesthetic development may be lacking, <laughs> uh, but I already know what Vermeer is doing. Yeah. But nonetheless, it, 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 there is something striking in the Dutch, uh, you know, Reformed tradition that there, it is almost bringing out a holiness yeah. in everydayness yeah. reflective of the theology. Yeah. Now that goes bad. Yes. Now tell, explain why. One of the things that happens... Just it's in the world in general, and it takes out the art world with just as much force as it did everything else. Is the Enlightenment? You have these guys who, some of them were Christian, some of them were not, but they're trying to come up with logical proof for everything in life. And if you can't specifically, with reasonable proof, prove something true, then it's not considered valid or worthy of time, essentially. Um, so. You know, Descartes' kind of the big moment of that whole bit of, you know, I think, therefore I am. You know, that's essentially his proof for existence. But then anything that's subjective, like faith instantly becomes subjective. Religion just then becomes this thing that people can do, but there's not really much reason behind it. Because you can't prove God. And so the Christians that are kind of out there trying to use logical proof to prove God oftentimes create a theology that looks more like Greek philosophy than the Bible and kind of voids out most of the power of, you know, Christian thought. They also, in the art world, creates kind of two streams of art because you essentially have the stream of art that's very little, it's, or literal, it's an empirical kind of, you know, I paint what I see the way I see it exactly. Versus the romantics, who are so frustrated by this taking of the wonder of life out of things and getting rid of, you know, kind of the transcendental things in life, like beauty and goodness and truth and, you know, things that are going to be hard to prove specifically. And so they kind of try to create work that's more mythical and symbolic and has emotion behind it. But in the process, they actually develop kind of this religion of art. Art becomes its own religion, devoid of God. The rom romantic, so in the uh, kind of... The, you have in one stream disenchantment, yeah, and the other uh, a, a reified enchantment. Yeah, would that be a way of putting it? Yeah, that you're kind of worshiping the idea of creation, not necessarily the creator. Versus on the other side, you don't worship at all because what's the true basis for that? There's no logical proof for why you would have to do that. And so what you have is what's really interesting is a lot of people would think that the impressionists would be more of the romantics, but they're actually technically empiricists. Monet has a really famous quote where he talks about kind of his process of painting 
where he's like, well, I saw a speck of blue, so I painted a speck of blue. And then I saw a speck of pink, so I painted a speck of pink. Like, he literally painted what he saw broken down into its basic elements. And so with the Impressionists, it's an impression of what they're seeing. And they're trying to paint it in the color exactly the way it is in nature, which is why the Impressionists don't use the color black. They create their own shadows, not using the color black. Out of the Impressionists, you technically very quickly get, not very quickly, but within a pretty short span of time, they're what moves into Cubism. Weirdly enough, you would never, if you didn't really know a whole lot about art, hadn't looked at a lot of art, it would seem kind of a weird jump to go from Impressionism to Cubism. But they're essentially taking the same concept of, I paint what I see, the literal thing, and breaking it down into a very basic geometric form. Um, I think it's Mondrian. He's kind of the famous, you know, kind of cubist who has just like the square boxes that it's like little black squares that have yellow and red and blue in them. He, he said he geometry was one of the few things in life he knew he could prove and he wanted to break down art into geometry to make it as literal as possible. Kind of the same thing with Picasso. He's creating a way through using kind of these weird choppy versions of humanity He's creating a way where you can see everything all at once and then flattening out the image. Um, and so, yeah, you have kind of them going up that stream. On the other side of it, you have the romantics who are all about expression. That's actually where you get Van Gogh. Van Gogh is not an impressionist. He's an expressionist. And he's actually a bit of an oddity even with the expressionist because he's kind of a Christian as well. He struggles a lot in his faith, but he originally wanted to be a missionary and become a pastor and nobody would take him because he had all these crazy mood swings and had all these weird notions about living like the poor people lived in order to work amongst them. It just was not done. (laughs) And so instead he realized he's got a little bit of a talent for drawing and he had worked in the art world for many years for his uncle. And so he decides to become an artist and in a very short span of time just creates an incredible body of work. But his struggle as an artist was always about putting the emotion back into his work. What was he feeling while he was looking at something? Which is why when you look at Expressionist artwork, it tends to have more movement than the Impressionists. And yeah, so, I always, uh, as, as uninitiated and, and, uh, as I am, I, always, I must say that when Van Gogh, uh, it, I, I have a deep appreciation yeah. for his. That it just seems even a simple person like myself can look at his stuff and and it's very moving yeah he is an incredible incredible person to ever read about if you ever read a biography about him he's very interesting because he's constantly dealing with about from the time he's like a young young man dealing with some kind of mental illness and if you read his biographies it kind of it can go a lot of different ways like it'd be hard to diagnose obviously because he's not really here my guess is it's probably something towards bipolar because he would have these manic moments where he would get so much done and he'd be crazy and excited about something and then he would fall into a depression because something would happen to kind of frustrate his plans. And so um, you have kind of that concurrent with his struggles to find his place in the world with what's his calling. Is it to be... He was originally like an art um, curator uh, for his uncle owned a like art almost like a warehouse business where they sold art. They would find art from artists in the area and then just turn around and sell it in their gallery. And so he did that for a while, but he wasn't very good at it. And so then he decided he wanted to go into the ministry. 
And then he was very, very bad at that. He would give these long, crazy kind of sermons. And then he decided... Why wouldn't people like that? Right? (laughs) Um, Then he decided to maybe do missions work. And so he um, went to work in a coal mining town in a very, very poor section of France. And he just frustrated the missionary society to no end because he insisted on giving away all the money that he would have to the other people and he would barely eat. He would make sure other people were fed and he would live in dirty, ragged clothes and a dirty, you know, falling down house. And all the only luxury he would allow himself was his drawing supplies. Cause he would draw the people he would see walking to and from work. Hmm. And so in the process, he created a lot of sympathy and a kind of um, companionship amongst the people that he was working with because they saw that even though he was kind of nuts, he had this passion to want to be with them and to serve them. But the mission society at the time was like, this is completely unacceptable. You have no idea what you're doing. We're pulling you out. And so at that time was when he's like, fine, if I can't do something for God, I'll become an artist. And so um, I think that's why a lot of people you see in his work, all of his work, kind of this struggle that he keeps trying to become better, trying to find his place. I think it's something a lot of people can relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels very real, even if it's just a picture of sunflowers, you know. Which there's the whole, are you, have you seen the the film, Love, I think, Loving Vincent? Yes. So good. Yeah. Just imagining the amount of work it took to make that film is staggering. But then the film itself is really, really, I mean, it's beautifully done. But then the story is really interesting as well. Because you're kind of getting Vincent Van Gogh's life story from the people that would have known him in that time. And, so, and, and by the way, the most recent uh, bio- biographical yeah. information, which indicates he didn't commit suicide at all. Yeah. It was a, a kind of semi-accident. Yeah. That he covered up by not saying anything and making it look like a suicide. Yeah. So, so you have, so you have the, let me see if I can keep this straight. So yeah. there's there's philosophically and theologically. Yeah. There is the the Reformation, and then then uh, the kind of move to uh, Rene Descartes. Yeah. And with Cartesian understanding, things are broken down. Everything is is valued uh, uh, maybe mathematically. Yeah. That that uh, by its dimensions. Uh, the the thing I've heard about Descartes or a follower of Descartes in Paris that they, a group of young men were walking on the banks of the uh, of river in Paris and a dog came up and the kid uh, the young guy kicked the dog in the stomach and his companions were shocked because you know he would do such a thing and he said well we know that it's just a mere machine <laughs> yeah. That that uh, Cartesianism moves into a kind of Newtonianism, yeah. in which the universe is conceived mechanically, yeah. and and uh, maybe even uh, everything up to, and sometimes including human beings, then are yeah. lacking in any kind of that. Well, and that's the thing you see, kind of as you come into World War One, the kind of the moments just prior to World War I happening, is there's this strange kind of understanding of what a human being is. Because you either have the very romantic notion of you're an entirely a spiritual being and you can attain to a spiritual you know, place through art, through whatever it might be. 
um, the body is kind of not necessary anymore. Um, from the more empirical side of art, you have this, we're breaking down everything into exactly what we feel. It's a very kind of distant, almost cold. Um, the body is just a machine. People are not really anything special any more than that's one of the really interesting things that happens in the early impressionist movement is they do kind of similar to what the early Dutch painters had done in that they paint everyday people, but now they're painting prostitutes and drunks and, you know, drug addicts and people that they're hanging out with in these bars and like, you know, the lower ends of Paris or whatever. And when they try to present these paintings in the big art salons in Paris, the art world is shocked and appalled. Like, they start riots because people are like, this is not real art. You should never have these types of people in with, you know, all of these fine depictions of art. And essentially the Impressionists are saying, this is what we see. This is where we live. This is what is in front of us. Um, but there's no attempts made within that to say, you know, how can you make life better for those you know, people that are stuck in those ways of life? It's just, this is what life is. And so you have that kind of Nietzschean, you know... Life is nothing. Everything is meaningless. Just get over it. Um, which all radically changes when World War I happens. Because now we see that mankind is not just the spiritual being that can attain to some higher plane. But he is maybe more of the machine. But maybe that's not a good thing. Because now these human machines are making machines to kill other humans. And the just death and destruction that's, you know kind of wreaked havoc through Europe becomes almost overwhelming that nobody has ever seen death kind of on that scale up to that point. And the art world doesn't really know what to do with that anymore. There's kind of this refusion of the two strains of art where the kind of the romantics are completely disillusioned and the empiricists are like, well, this isn't really what we wanted. And so art takes a really dark turn because it doesn't really know what to do to try to deal with the trauma of the war. And it doesn't really get much of a reprieve because World War II happens pretty quickly on the heels of World War I. And so you have, within just the first half of a century, so much death on a scale that nobody has ever seen. And, you know, most people would have been alive for both wars in some cases. That now you're having to deal with, you know, what do I really believe? What's really true and valid? Can human beings ever be real human beings again? Or are they always just going to be these monsters that treat each other with violence and depravity. Um, and so does this give rise to cubism and modernism? It's actually, cubism kind of falls at the beginning of kind of the World War II era, and it falls out of favor pretty quickly after that. It's kind of picked up in ways and shapes in other spots, but it's being used in a different way after both of the wars. And so what you have in the modern art world is an entirely different way of looking at art. You can't necessarily talk about modern art in the same way that you talk about other types of art. Um, there's a loss of focal point in some places. So when you look at the painting, there's not one specific thing you're supposed to look at first. You're trying to take it all in at once. Um, there's a level of chaos and disorder um, and shock and awe that's now in art that wasn't there previously because they're dealing with a world that's not beautiful with people that can't be trusted because there's more evil in the world than we could have ever possibly have assumed. There's no hope if you don't have 
you know, God in the system anywhere. And so you're left with a world that's dark and disillusioned. And now it's all about being the next person to one up the last guy and say, here's my, you know, my display. Here's who I am. Here's what I can do. Art becomes way less about the art itself at a certain point and more about the artist in modern art. Um, and it becomes a very quickly this avant-garde kind of thing where, um, like you have Jackson Pollock's kind of early on and he does the splatter paintings, which is an almost total existentialist kind of evaluation of painting where he's creating the painting and creating himself at the same time. He's learning about himself and saying, this is who I am. And it changes as he changes the painting. And so he never has any plan going into it. He just starts making and it comes out to be what it comes out to be. That then moves into Andy Warhol and guys like him that are kind of these pop artists that are doing, um, things that they see in consumer culture that are kind of taking over their world. And while they might be making a statement about it, they're mostly just displaying what they've already seen and just trying to recreate it in some way. Um, moves into, like art just kind of progressively keeps moving up towards kind of close to our own time. Um, but it becomes this sense of once somebody's done that, nobody else can do that because now you're just copying Pollock or you're just copying, copying Warhol. Um, the artists themselves live these lives that are kind of avant-garde and on the edge and on the fringe and become, um, there becomes this weird dynamic of elitism in art where the artists are considered elites, even though they may live like, you know, poverty level, um, cause they're considered, you know, culturally, you know, avant-garde. They live on the edges, on the fringe. They do things that no one else would do, you know, at a time when no one else would do them. But they're funded by people with a lot of money and a lot of education who are now dictating what taste and culture ought to look like. And there's a specific shutting out of kind of a middle class sensibility that we don't want just ordinary people to be kind of included in our club because they're not good enough. They won't get it. We can't trust them. They appeal to values that are not necessary anymore. We don't need that sort of a world. And so that's where the church in more recent times, I think, has fallen very much out of favor with art because artists were dangerous and they presented a lifestyle that the church could not possibly, you know, whether you're, you know, a maybe not so theologically minded Christian or a very theologically minded Christian, you have to agree that some of the ways that people live is just like, we can't support that kind of thing. That's just not right. Um, and so their first reaction as is often the case in the church is, well, we just don't do that here. And we shut all of that out. We don't need any of that. And so there's now become kind of this culture war that's left kind of in the balance of, you know, this isn't good Christian values. This isn't good American values that needs to stay over there. We don't do that here. But at the same time, the art world's looking at the church as old fashioned and behind the times and irrelevant and, you know, wearing rosy 1950s conservative America glasses to every problem in life. And so they're considered unnecessary. We don't need the church to promote ourselves. We can, we can make art. We will sell art. We will steer culture the way we want it to go. And so you get a kind of the whole notion of culture wars. Yeah. That in some way the, the, the church and the, uh, is over and against at least this aspect of culture. Yeah. Uh, and there then is not 
the development of the notion of a fully developed culture of the church. Yeah. And so it is a kind of, the, the place for, for humanity in the church, it's almost like there's no room left for embodied human beings yeah. in what becomes evangelical Christianity. Yeah. It's funny because it becomes the kind of thing where, you know, we may have started off with this, you know, Protestant work ethic where there's kind of this, you know, value placed on having a job, doing a job well, making a solid paycheck, providing for your family. It's considered a Christian ideal. Um, somehow that just kind of morphs through time into, um, like, it's not even like your vocation is a thing that you can do as a Christian. The only thing you can really do as a Christian is show up to church on Sunday, listen politely to the sermon, sing the couple of songs, pray the prayer, and then go about the rest of your life. Somehow Christianity never touches on any other part of your life. And so, yeah, there's not a fully embodied, you know, humanity to Christianity anymore because... I'm a Christian on Sunday when I put on my church clothes and I sit in the pew and I, you know, nicely shake hands with the people standing around me, but I'm something else during the rest of the week when I go to my job and when I sit with my family at dinner and when I, you know, do my fun hobbies or whatever it might be, I can do those completely devoid of, you know, my faith in a way and not have a single problem with that. There's not even an understanding, I feel like, in the church nowadays where people even know that they're missing out. Um, versus what, you know, the gospel really says, and it kind of goes back to what we said in part one, you know, that, you know, Christ's command is, if you are my disciple, you will do as I commanded, you know, and part of Christ's command is that your, your decision to follow him has to influence literally everything you do from how you wake up in the morning to how you brush your teeth, to how you make breakfast for your family, to how you work at your job, to anything you might do in the day from Monday through Sunday, that there's no special privileging of one day over the other, that any day you can be, you know, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. You know, that you don't have to be someplace special to be a Christian. You're supposed to be a Christian every moment. Um, and I feel like that's where the art world then can kind of be brought back in. Because like you said, that it's a false idea of what culture is supposed to be, that somehow the church doesn't have a culture or that the church's culture is, you know, ichthus stickers on the backs of cars, you know. The, the, you've heard me say this before, but then the, the question arises, how do you reincorporate the, a fully orbed, you know, full appreciation of what a human being is into the church? And I think it's provided for in a correct theological understanding uh, one of which, one of the facets of which would be the notion of Sabbath. Yeah. That in, you know, the se on the seventh day when God rested, it's not that he quit doing stuff. Yeah. It's that in, in a sense that here is God, you know, we see him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. If you're thinking in the terms of the temple, here is the point, the seventh day is the point that God would be installed, you know, that yeah. he comes to his temple. And so in a book like Hebrews, you have the picture of that we cease one form of activity, working, toiling, yeah. a kind of, and in, in, in what it becomes in 
a sinful understanding of futility yeah. that uh, of work that is very much represented in capitalism i think yeah that that what you know if you think of the strange thing that capitalism is here it is actually the fusion of a theological understanding you know we often think that the the, the christianity and secularity are some sort of opposed system but actually what you have in Calvinism is theology giving rise to secularism and what you've just described is a secular valuation that has come to invade the church because of the very you know theological notion and so what what is lost in all that or what maybe what's represented in capitalism is the the I I think the Bitcoin that has just occurred is is a neat illustration that uh, there's nothing there, literally. I just, yeah. some, some, as far as I know, just some numbers. You know, there is yeah. nothing that that it's just uh, anybody can create a currency. Yeah, uh, because there's nothing there in the currency. Well, that's all that capitalism is. It's the circulation of the the sign of value. Yeah, but we've given the we've given implicit value to the sign. So that the thing that it, you know, the sign is in some way, you know, the idea of wealth or collecting of money. Yeah. You know, which the paper that it's printed on is not intrinsically valuable. No. <laughs> but we imagine that it is. We imagine that yeah. wealth is intrinsically valuable. And it's precisely because of bad theology. Yeah. And so that is, I think, the end point of what Paul describes as the love of money being idolatry. Yeah. What is idolatry? The idol is itself nothing. Yeah. And you reify and absolutize the nothing. Yeah. And a person whose value system is based upon this reduces to an empty container that pure drive, you know, I imagine Gordon Gecko getting up in the movie Wall Street yeah. and saying, greed is good. <laughs> yeah. Pure drive is divine. Yeah. Uh, that in some way, that is the, the, that we need to check out of that, and I think the way, the way you check out of it, is through a reintroduction of uh, Sabbath redemption. That yeah. we are not bound by the, the, the six days, but we're bound by the redemptive activity of God, which is all-inclusive. Yeah. And so leisure is the wrong word, but maybe leisure gets at this, that a life filled with drive and the frenetic activity of accumulation cannot really have time for anything no. like that, that is human. Yeah. That we're emptied of our humanity. Yeah. And so I think through the leisure of Sabbath, the idea that, oh, no, actually we have all the time in the world. Yeah. It is redemption time in which we are co-creators that we can reintroduce yeah. an, an appreciation of our fully orbed humanity. It makes me think of um, the early church and how they would live together and eat together and they shared all things. And as anyone had need, they would give to that other one. Um, I feel like in some ways that's not necessarily like specifically the answer, like communal living or whatever is necessarily the answer to where we're at in the church today. 
I feel like in some ways the early church had a very specific time and a place to be able to do what they did. But I feel like within that, though, is the understanding that they're not working to work. They're working because it's part of what Christ has called them to as, you know, not just a vocation, but as a way to follow him. Like, it makes me think of um, Paul talking about when he would sit with Priscilla and Aquila and mend tents. You know, that Paul had a specific trade on top of being, you know, a missionary and presenting the word of God that he was able to, um, you know, provide monetarily for himself. But you don't find him doing that all the time. And you don't find him obsessed over the work of being a tent maker. You know, we don't have like, you know, 10, 15 epistles in the Bible talking about tent making. We have all these epistles written by Paul talking about the work he did for Christ, the places that he went, the people that he saw, the things that he saw within the church that needed addressing and the encouragement that he could give them. And I feel like that's what's a lot of times missing in church is you have so much focus on, you know, I go do the church thing on Sunday because that's what, you know, good people do. But then the rest of the week, I'm so focused on advancing my career. Or if you're a student on getting through school so I can have a career, you know, I'm trying to figure this thing in life out when, Maybe that's not really what the point is. Maybe you've spent all this time and all of this energy and exhausted yourself for nothing. You know, sure, maybe you've got the big house and the big boat, um, but what do you really have besides that? Our pastor just preached a um, sermon series, well, both of our pastors at um, my home church just preached a sermon series on the concept of work and where does work come from and how work is technically ordained by God before the fall. So that work in and of itself is not sinful. It's not sinful to work with your hands and with your mind or whatever and to provide for yourself and to take care of those around you. What becomes sinful is how we use work. And like you said, you know, are we, you know, making an idol out of the love of money? Are we even making an idol out of just the concept of work itself Mm -hmm. and just this attainment of like perfection and excellence and always being better and trying harder? Or are we using work as a way to glorify God? And one of the things my pastor said at one point, he had, you know, kind of this little quote was that just because you get a promotion doesn't mean it's from God. You know, within a Protestant work ethic, if you get a promotion, surely God wanted you to have that. You know, even our current televangelist crowd would tell you, you know, that you know God's favor is on your life if you're making more money and you have all of these things. You have a jet airplane. Yeah, exactly. And he made the comment, he's like, you know, what if you get the promotion and it means now you have to work even longer hours at the office and your family now suffers? Is that God's will? Would it be God's will that your kids never see you and that your wife doesn't remember what you look like? You know, or maybe it involves, you know, doing a lot more traveling and there's more temptation now that you're subjected to that you weren't subjected to before. You're putting yourself in a place of danger spiritually, you know. Or maybe it, you know, just opens you up to ideas of pride and I did this for myself. Like my work has achieved this honor for myself that, you know, just sitting there, you know, in your cube or wherever your place of business is that you have that smug thought to yourself of, I did this for myself. I don't need God, you know. Which the, there you end up then with the, the the valuing of the marker of value that it is a, a tautologist system in which there is no you know it's almost like the the very goals of capitalism are that the art of the deal 
and of course this is the slight difference and let, let's let's stop here with this thought and do one more <laughs> but let me let me stop with this thought or your comment on it there's a very slight difference between the word art and artifice yeah that um, artifice is the thing that is valued most highly the art of the deal yeah the ability then to turn a profit without the expenditure of having made any contribution yeah that is your the the profit is in gain without expenditure yeah. represented that is the pure capitalist yeah in which every this is the pinnacle of value in which we've drained out anything of any real value. Yeah. Well, and in the same time as you've, you know, it makes me think of, since I was a little tiny kid, I've always thought it was funny when you flip something over and it says made in China or made in Taiwan or made in Mexico or wherever. And it's something that maybe looks specifically very American. Like, it might even have an American flag on it, but it was made in China. You know, and as a little kid, I always thought that was so weird that everything I own is made from somewhere else. And now as an adult, as you learn more about how business practices are conducted around the world and you begin to realize that, you know, these artificial things that we buy so that we have things that we like, things that we want, we can create kind of an aesthetic about our lives um, but they're all kind of fake and they're made somewhere else. And a lot of times they're made with unethical business practices that people and the environment are being hurt simultaneously versus a lifestyle that's built more on art where it's something that took time. It took creativity. It took um, some kind of a purpose or a methodology behind it. Usually is made by somebody that's very good at what they do and has put a lot of time and hours into creating and honing their craft um, so much so that when you buy or purchase something that's like that, you'll never be able to really fully pay for the value of what it really is. Because you're taking something that somebody not only invested their time and energy in in that moment, but it's something that they've been doing for a very long time to be able to you know, present something of this kind of value to you. But then maybe it gives you the opportunity to um, prioritize people over things, to prioritize... Um, excellence and authentic you know values over kind of just this capitalist gain of well i i made money and now i own this you know that there is it is a different value valuation system in which the value is in the contribution and not in the profit yeah let's i and that leads me to the last topic i'd like to cover Okay. And that is if we can describe utopia oh, no. <laughs> in, a, in a perfect world. Yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, 
please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.